Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Hi, I'm Jenny Goldstein, and I'm a senior biocurator in the ClinGen Biocuration and Coordination Corps at UNC, and also a research assistant professor in the Department of Genetics. So it's great to be here today. Jenny, what originally made you interested in the field of genetics? Um, So I remember learning about inheritance of eye color when I was in elementary school and they explained autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive inheritance and I thought that was pretty cool but I think I really first became totally fascinated with genetics and molecular biology when I was in high school and we first learned about the structure of DNA and transcription and translation and I was just amazed to think about all these processes going on inside cells and how tiny these molecules are but yet performing these essential biological functions. Really just thinking about how the genetic code was structured and read and translated. So I think that's really what set me off on the path. Um, But later when I was in college uh, I learned more about genetic disorders that are affecting people And I think I felt really drawn to the interface between science and the personal impact that these conditions can have on individuals and their families and how their families cope with that. So really, you know, a few different points through my life just kind of led me to this interest in the field of genetics. So you've been to graduate school and training for being a genetic counselor. Can you tell us a little bit about going to both of those different types of training? Yeah, so actually um, my training and education path um, spans about 25 years. It shows how long I've been in the field. So I've taken a somewhat winding road, um, but always really stayed in the field of genetics and cell biology. Um, So yeah, after doing my undergrad in genetics at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, which is where I'm from, At that point, you know, I I really loved genetics and I felt like there wasn't really a lot in terms of career exploration. So the obvious thing for me to do is really go on and do um, a PhD. And um, so I continued on to graduate school. I did my PhD on the molecular genetics of retinitis pigmentosa, which is an inherited form of visual impairment. And so... I really, you know, really enjoyed working in the lab and I thought, well, next step will be a postdoc. So that's when I moved to um, the University of California at Berkeley to do postdoctoral research, um, working in molecular and cell biology, but continuing to work on the eye and inherited um, diseases. Um, so I like working in the lab, but I'd also decided to realize that I probably didn't want to be in the lab forever. <clears throat> And I also started to think more, again, about the human side of genetic disorders. Um, I think something that was somewhat of a revelation to me was that when I was still in grad school, um, in the final year of my PhD, I had the opportunity to go and meet with a local support group. 
excuse me, um, a local support group of uh, individuals who had the retinal disorders that I was working on. And it was really such an eye opener. You know, I've been working in the lab for two or three years, um, doing sort of research, doing sequencing and looking at the genes of these people, but to actually meet these folks and see a personal face um, for the disorders that I was working on. Um, it really just stayed with me. And I decided at that point that I really wanted to explore that a bit more and to look into the field of genetic counseling. So things kind of all came together. I was deciding that maybe lab research wasn't what I wanted to do forever. I'd had this experience with meeting people with these um, inherited disorders. And I also um, had the opportunity just by chance to meet by, with someone who was a genetic counselor. So I started to explore that a little bit more. And um, First of all, actually, while I was still doing my postdoc, I volunteered at um, the Berkeley Free Clinic as an HIV test counsellor, really to see whether I would enjoy kind of being in that role, um, counselling people through a difficult situation, um, talking about uh, what a test means, what it can tell you, what it can't tell you, and helping people who at times in their life were in crisis. And I found out that I, I did enjoy that work. It could be stressful at times, but I enjoyed it. And then it also gave me just some experience to build on um, moving forward to genetic counseling school. So from there, I did get into a genetic counseling program and um, I was at the Medical College of Virginia. And then after graduating, um, started working as a genetic counselor at Duke. So um, yeah, kind of a long and winding path, but I think you know every step in my career has really um, been a valuable experience um, for what I'm doing now as a biotechnologist. Mm -hmm. So how was your training to be a genetic counselor different from the graduate school PhD experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, yeah, so. For, for the PhD program, um, as I said, I was in, I was in Scotland. And um, so there, basically, um, it's purely lab research. There are no classes. So it's really almost like being in a job. You know, you get up every morning, you go into the lab, you do your experiments. And then, you know, certainly you're working towards publishing papers and a specific goal. Um, but it's very much um, just working in the lab every day. Um, of course, at the end of it, you have a big thesis to write and a defense and so on. But... Um, you know, I very much saw it as, you know, almost like like having a job, getting up every morning, going to lab. So um, when I went back to genetic counselling school, it had really been sort of five or six years since I'd been in a, a, a setting where you're going to class, um, you have to get used to you know, going to lectures again, um, doing classwork, doing assignments. So it took me a little bit of time, I think, to get back into that kind of mindset. But then also, of course, as part of the genetic counselling programme, um, you're learning how to um, interact with with clients and patients during a genetic counselling session. So that was something that was completely different. And so basically in our first semester, we would be um, uh, you know, present in a genetic counselling session, but just observing. And then over time, we would take on little parts of the session. So you know, explaining what a chromosome analysis is or something like that. And then little by little, taking on um, more parts of that so that by the end of the programme, you're really doing the entire session by yourself with of course, under supervision of a, a trained genetic counsellor. So that was kind of an interesting process to go through and the ways that they helped us learn some of these skills. So, for example, um, we would uh, sort of do act in different role-playing settings um, 
among the students in the class. So one person would be the genetic counselor and the other would be um, the patient and they would um, film this and, you know, give you feedback afterwards, like, oh, you did this really well, or maybe you could improve on that. So it was just, you know, a very interesting process to kind of learn uh, these skills. Before you came to work at UNC, I understand you were at Duke for a few years. Can you tell me about what you did there? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was at Duke for um, about 15 years, actually, before coming to UNC. So that was my first uh, position out of genetic counseling school. So for the first three years there, I was a a full-time general genetics counselor in the Department of Pediatrics. So I was seeing patients, usually four clinics a week. Um, I also did on-call work in the hospital as well. So um, we would see patients for all sorts of indications. And actually, although it was a pediatric department, um, we would also see adult patients as well um, for certain genetic conditions. Um, because they didn't really have anywhere else to go at that point. So um, we saw patients for a a really wide range of different indications. So um, children with developmental delays, um, children that had known genetic disorders, so things like neurofibromatosis or Marfan syndrome, um, adults who were coming in for assessment for neurological conditions like Huntington's disease, for example. So we would see some of the more common genetic disorders, but also things that were just, you know, very rare. And so back then, um, we weren't yet doing things like whole exome sequencing. So there was really um, a lot of thought about, you know, what are the the physical symptoms that this patient is showing? And do we think they have a particular uh, syndrome or not? Is there any genetic testing available for that? Um, And yeah, so I did that for about three years. And then after my first child was born, Um, I actually went back part-time to a different type of position. So I was working as a clinical research coordinator in the biochemical genetics lab. And in that role, I actually did a lot of different things. So I was still continuing to see patients. um, But in this case, um, they had metabolic disorders that we were also doing clinical research on. So that was really nice, actually, to be able to um, really develop sort of some more sort of specialized and in-depth knowledge. So particularly, I worked on um, research on glycogen storage disease type 9 and also creatine deficiency syndromes. So I would see all of those patients um, in the metabolic clinic, and then um, we would talk about the research studies with them and then do additional work looking at the clinical symptoms associated with those disorders and also the genetic changes that these patients had. Um, So it it was kind of nice to, I think, um, just develop my skills in in that particular area and understand these disorders in a bit more depth as well. So I did that for about 15 years. So some of the patients that I I saw in the clinic, I I really watched them grow up. I think of one little boy I saw at first when he was one year of age and we um, helped with his diagnosis uh, of a creatine deficiency syndrome and you know, followed him you know, every few months in the clinic and you know, helped with treatment and so on. So really just to, to get close to these families as you see them growing up and, and um, supporting them through different stages of life was, was really um, you know, a pretty amazing role to have. Um, yeah, so that was my, my time at Duke. But, you know, after about 15 years, I felt kind of ready for, for a change and um, just by chance heard about this bioturation position at UNC. And um, uh, that's when I moved, moved on to UNC. What exactly is a biocurator? 
So by a curator, when you think about um, a curator, a curator is someone who is, is collecting something. <laughs> so, for example, a curator for a museum may be collecting um, particular specimens for an exhibit or a curator for um, an art museum may be collecting different pieces of art for a particular artist or a particular type of art. When you think about a bio-curator, um, we are people who are collecting biological information or biomedical information um, for a particular purpose. Um, and so um, I work uh, with the Clinical Genome Resource, or ClinGen. And so, um, so what we're doing is basically um, collecting uh, information to help with um, understanding the relevance of genes and variants in, in genetic uh, disease. So I think at, you know, at the current time, um, we have this incredible ability to be able to detect genetic variation, but we don't always really know what that means. So when you think about it, you know, we can uh, sequence a genome in the space of a day, and you may detect you know, millions of different variants in a single person, but what exactly does that mean? So when someone has a genetic test, um, the test may identify a variant, but how do you know whether that, that variant is actually causing the condition that that person's being tested for? So breast cancer, for example. And in some cases, we know that there are really well-known genetic variants that cause breast cancer, but other times there may be a variant comes back in the BRCA1 gene, and it's not really clear whether it's causing that person's cancer. So um, there's a lot of information out there in various places. Um, so there's information in publicly available databases. Um, and then there's a lot of information that's kind of siloed away in, um, in uh, databases from clinical genetic testing labs. Um, so what ClinGen is really aiming to do is to kind of bring all of this information together in a very standardized way and to work with experts in the field to help make standardized assertions about that information. So, for example, um, how much information, how much evidence is there that variants in a particular gene can cause a certain disease? And how much evidence is there that this particular variant is causing um, this genetic disease? So, um, we work with experts in the field and make all of this information publicly available in a very standardized way so that now anyone who's interested, so whether that be a researcher or a clinician, can actually access our website and um, get that information. So that's what I'm doing as a biocurator is really um, collecting this information under a very you know, standardized way using the processes that ClinGen has developed in order to really you know, help with, with this, this process. Um, so that's the job of a bio-curator. Um, so with my job, I'm certainly involved in this process of um, looking at different genes and variants. And within ClinGen, we do this uh, in groups called expert panels. And these expert panels are, under, are really organized under different disease areas. For example, we have expert panels working on different metabolic disorders and different types of cancers, different types of uh, cardiac diseases, and so on. Um, and then we really work with some of the world experts uh, on these disorders. So we collect the information, work with these experts to help, you know, answer different questions and then come up with this very um, standardized um, information that's available then. And of course, ClinGen now, is, so it's an NIH funded um, project, but it really has become a, a very large um, 
very large operation. We've been uh, functional since uh, 2013, and I think there are now well over a thousand people uh, worldwide uh, working uh, within ClinGen. So many of them actually work as volunteers. And then um, some folks like myself are, are paid through the NIH grant. So we are actually funded through um, the ClinGen grant. So it's a you know large operation, but the main goal is to make all of this information publicly um, available. And of course, in addition to our expert panels that I mentioned that are actually doing the curation work, um, part of my role and my job is also to help with some of the ClinGen infrastructure because it is such a large organization. Of course, we need a lot of infrastructure to make sure that the groups are doing things consistently. Um, and also things like our interfaces. So we have online interfaces where the curators enter the, the data and information making sure that, um, you know, those continue to develop, you know, are there new features that we want that could help our curators? And then also making sure that our curators are appropriately trained. So that's another thing that I do in my job is um, uh, as, a, as a lead curator in some of these different expert panels, when a new expert panel is beginning, uh, I can help train the curators and the group um, to, on our ClinGen processes, and also making sure that our curators are being kept up to date with any um, databases that they should be using or just any resources that can be helpful for their work. So those are the main, the main things that I do in my job. What is a typical day in your job like? Um, yeah, so that's, that's a great question. So um, just to let you know that my job uh, is purely done uh, via computer. So basically, I'm at my computer um, all day. Um, so uh, I have a standing desk. I don't like to sit too much. But um, so there's various things. I think um, a typical day for me, um, the first thing I'm going to do is just check my email, um, make sure there's nothing uh, you know, that's an emergency that I need to get out of the way straight away. I will check my email, check my schedule for the day. Um, and I like to get a few sort of small things out of the way at first, just to kind of uh, get my brain focused. And then um, usually I'll be working on some sort of bigger projects. So it may be, for example, a curation where I am um, going out to the medical and scientific literature or different publicly available databases and collecting information um, on the gene gene disease relationship or a variant that I'm looking at. And I think this is one of the, the things I, I kind of like about my job because I'm reading just so much scientific literature and, you know, I've been working in the genetics field a long time, but I think I'm just constantly amazed at just the molecular mechanisms in our human body and really uh, the ingenuity ingenuity of scientists also to figure this stuff out is, is really incredible. So I think, you know, it's just constantly a learning process. And, you know, as part of my job, I'm maybe reading papers across the decades. I mean, I've been reading papers from like the 1950s of the, you know, things that were published last week. So just seeing just the, the level of knowledge that's been developed over the years and how people have figured these things out is, is really pretty amazing. So that's all part of my curation work, as I said, you know, reading these, these papers and then entering the appropriate data into our interfaces. Um, so a lot of the work I'm doing, I'm doing independently just at my computer. So that's one piece of it. But then my day is also um, split up a little bit um, by our regular conference calls. 
So we will have conference calls with the members of our expert panels where we will uh, talk about the recent, recent curation work that we've done. Um, this gives us an opportunity to interact with these, you know, as I said, world experts on different disorders where we can ask questions like, oh, I read this paper on this particular mouse model. What do you think about that? Do you think this is, um, you know, uh, relevant to this particular or had a question about this particular assay that they did. I'm not sure if this is valid or not. So that type of thing. So it really gives you this amazing opportunity to interact with these folks. Um, and then so I typically have, I would say, maybe two to three hours of conference calls a day. So some are with the expert panels and then some are on some of the um, uh, the infrastructure uh, for ClinGen. So for example, one of the groups I'm working I'm involved in is on developing our variant curation interface. Um, we have a functional interface where we can enter all this information about genetic variants, but we're constantly trying to make improvements that can help our curators um, do things uh, more efficiently and, you know, what are the best um, improvements that can be made to help our workflow. So that's another part of my day are these um, conference calls. And we do them by conference call because we can have folks, you know, all over the, the world. And sometimes that can actually be a challenge in determining, you know, at what time should we have this call? Because we have someone in Australia and we have someone <laughs> on the West Coast of the US and someone in the UK. So, you know, um, it, it can definitely be challenging um, to find these calls. I feel like I'm lucky to be on the East Coast of the U.S. because in general, we, we tend to be, you know, not have calls at, at times of day that are too crazy. So, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, so, you know, just working on various projects um, as well as my curation work. Um, we also look at data to try and help inform our um, curation process. So, for example... I might be looking at a new tool that's available. So something I did recently, there was a, a new um, splice site predicting tool came out and we wanted to sort of look at that in comparison to other tools that were available for predicting whether a particular genetic variant may affect the splicing process. So I collected a lot of data for that and did a comparison. But there's always sort of little projects like that that are going on um, just sort of trying to move the work forward and help inform our processes. So I would say, um, you know, although I'm at my computer all day, there's uh, a lot of variability in the work. Um, some of it is definitely done very independently, and I, I like that. I think, you know, truly at heart, I'm a bit of an introvert, so I, I like being able to do the independent work. But I also like the opportunity to feel like I'm working as a member of a team, um, so whether that's working with our expert panels or also with um, other folks in the ClinGen community, um, just moving things uh, forward and having that opportunity to work as a team is is really nice. So, um, yeah, so those are the, the usual things I'm doing um, as part of my work. Yeah, do you have a favorite gene or a favorite condition that you've worked with in yeah. your time in, in, in the world of genetics? Yeah, it, that's, that's a great question. Um, so I think one of the things I like about this job with ClinGen is that I've actually been able to continue to work on some of the things I worked on in my previous job at Duke. So I feel just incredibly lucky to have been able to carry that forward because I think I have quite an emotional connection <laughs> to some of these genes and conditions. 
Um, so one of those is the GAA gene for Pompe disease. So I did um, quite a lot of work on this gene when I was at Duke. So Duke actually does a lot of uh, clinical research on Pompe and um, I looked at um, you know enzyme replacement therapy really was involved in development of enzyme replacement therapy for this condition. So Pompe disease itself is really encompasses a wide spectrum of uh, clinical symptoms, but at its most severe end, um, these babies are born with, um, they develop uh, cardiomegaly, which is uh, basically a very large heart. The reason they have that is that they have glycogen storage um, within the heart and with other muscles because this particular enzyme that breaks down glycogen isn't working properly. So um, their muscles um, don't work properly. They're very hypotonic or floppy babies. And then the heart is very large, but it also does not function well. So usually, if they're not treated, these babies die by about a year of age. And then there's a huge spectrum. Yeah, it's very, very, very tough. Um, there's a huge spectrum of clinical severity, though. So for some folks, will actually develop symptoms um, later in life, again, with muscle weakness. Um, they have um, so muscle weakness of the limb girdles so around the hips and shoulders, um, and that is progressive. So eventually they're no longer able to walk. They'll be in a wheelchair and they have breathing difficulties and again um, will pass away. But um, over the years, um, an enzyme replacement therapy uh, was developed. So it was recognized that this particular enzyme in Pompe disease is not working well, and you can simply um, infuse that into patients uh, every couple of weeks, and um, that can certainly ameliorate their symptoms. Um, so for the very severe cases, it's not a complete cure, but these babies are able to, to live and you know, grow up, and they still have some residual symptoms, but it's you know, obviously a huge improvement. Um, so some of the work that I've been able to continue with um, uh, as part of ClinGen is in a variant curation expert panel where we are looking at all the different genetic variants that can cause uh, Pompe disease. And this is actually, you know, I think important work because there is now um, newborn screening for Pompe disease because um, obviously the sooner you can treat people with this condition, the better the prognosis is for them. So in some states now, they are taking the, the blood spots that are collected from all babies at birth, and they are testing to see whether the enzyme works well or not. But it is, it is a screening process. So as with any newborn screening, it's not 100%, it's not 100% sensitive, and there can also be some false positives. So with the genetic testing, um, we want to have this available um, to confirm whether or not they actually have the condition. So it's important to be able to know whether a genetic variant is actually causing the disease or not. So we're looking at all of the evidence for these different um, genetic variants for Pompe disease um, in our ClinGen expert panel. So that's been really great. And then um, I also work on a creatine deficiency syndrome expert panel as well. Um, as I mentioned, when I was at Duke, I worked um, with patients with creatine deficiency syndromes. And these are pretty rare disorders, actually, but they're um, also very, very severe. So um, for some patients, they are unable to make um, a substance called creatine, which is very important in providing energy for brain and muscle. And... Um, if you're unable to make creatine or, or to transport it into the brain, um, these patients have very severe symptoms. So they may have severe seizures, um, cognitive impairment, movement disorder. And for the patients who are unable to make um, creatine, if you're able to diagnose them quickly and then treat them with creatine, they have this, an incredibly 
better prognosis. Um, so one of the patients I work with at Duke actually was diagnosed at about a year of age and um, started treatment. And he's now um, 12 years of age. And really, you just wouldn't know that he has, has this condition. Um, he's been able to go through regular school and he has some very mild residual uh, impacts, but otherwise is doing great. And I would think about the the difference in his life had he not been diagnosed and treated. So again, we have um, this expert panel where we are looking at the different genetic changes that cause uh, this condition in the hopes of, you know, um, informing better diagnosis. So yeah, I'm very lucky <laughs> to mm -hmm. um, be able to continue this and to have had, you know, the experience with these these patients initially. And um, yeah, it's been really, um, I feel very lucky for that opportunity. What are the most challenging parts about your job? Um, yeah, so I think um, in general, one of the major challenges that any biocurator will have is just access to information. Um, and I think we see this really a lot. I mean, certainly there is a lot of information that's out there in the scientific and medical uh, literature, which is, is great. But sometimes as you're reading a paper, you might be like, oh, gosh, I really wish they had told me some other detail about this patient. Like, what was their enzyme activity? Or did they do this particular assay? They didn't say that. I, I don't know. So really just access to that information. And um, this has become really clear to me, I think, working in the um, the Pompeii disease variant curation expert panel, where we are working still with, with people from Duke. So um they do a lot of the, the enzyme testing and genetic testing for this condition. And sometimes I'll see a paper from them and be like, oh, I really wish I knew this. And I can just contact them and be like, you know, did you do testing on this patient? Do you have this information? <laughs> and they can then provide it, which is really great. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's one thing. It's just, it's just access to information. Um, and so, for example, too, we know a lot of the clinical genetic testing labs have you know, huge amounts of information on the patients that they test. Um, but of course, that's not publicly available and maybe rightly so, of course, because you certainly shouldn't be accessing this, this information without the consent um, of the patient. But one thing that we're trying to do is to make that information more available. And there are different programs, I think, that have been um, developed in order to do that. The one, for example, is the matchmaker exchange, which allows um, physicians and, and labs to, to share information. So... Um, they may recognize like, oh, that patient has similar symptoms to the one that I'm looking at, you know, and look, they have a variant in the same gene. And so being able to put all of this together really, um, really help in terms of determining whether a particular gene is causing um, a particular um, clinical uh, condition. So that's definitely one, one challenging part, I think, is, is, um, is trying to determine, uh, is really trying to have access to all of this uh, information. Um, so I think another challenge to the job is just uh, scaling up our efforts. So as you can imagine, you know, a single biocurator going out to the medical literature and all of these databases, it takes time to collect all of this information. And um, we certainly don't collect every piece of information, but it takes a lot of time to, to read, identify the appropriate articles, information. I mean, certainly it's, it's interesting. It's a lot of fun. But looking at what we're really trying to do, which is look at all the different gene disease relationships and look at, you know, potentially thousands of variants within a gene, um, it's not maybe the most efficient process. So over time, um, you know, just trying to develop um, AI and, you know, ways to extract that information um, from papers um, to at least, 
have that information available as efficiently as possible. Um, and then maybe looking at some of the bioinformatics as well that can, can you know, pull out um, certain information like frequencies of different variants within a gene um, so that it's all ready for the curator to then sort of assess and, and, and put it in the context of the gene disease relationship. So that's definitely another part is the sort of the scaling up um, part of it that um, I think is, is, is challenging. You know, this, this work takes a lot of time, a lot of attention to detail and how can we do this more efficiently. So I think those are a couple of things, just that access to all the information you need and then the, the scaling up part of it, making it as efficient as possible. So switching gears a little bit and thinking about um, the audience that we're um, addressing here is primarily an undergraduate student audience. Um, what sorts of things do you think are useful for undergraduate students to do to um, help figure out where they would like to go next after they finish college, whether it's if they are looking for a job or if they're looking for further training? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think I would say, first of all, just um, examine every possible avenue available to you and definitely take advantage of, you know, things like this program, for example, which is really, really great. Um, just looking into all the different careers that um, might be out there because I feel like, you know, obviously I'm a, a little bit older. I feel like this type of thing really was less available when I was at that stage. So just taking opportunity of, you know, any kind of careers fairs or any situations where you have the chance to learn about different uh, careers. Because certainly within the genetics field, there are many, many different opportunities available to you. Um, and I would say, you know, try and explore things. If you feel like you might be interested in lab research, then, you know, try and get some experience working in a, in a lab um, as an undergraduate, you know, maybe volunteer or work study position. So if there's something that's interest you, then is interesting you, then, you know, try and investigate that a little bit more. So whether it's talking to somebody who does that or actually having the chance to, you know, buy your hand at it, you know, do some research or, um, thinking about some of the programs available through ClinGen, actually, we have a program um, where we um, work with undergraduates and they are reading papers and they're annotating the information. So helping us to pull out the important pieces of that information for the curations we do. So that might be an opportunity for folks to um, learn a bit whether they might enjoy that type of work. So really just, um, yeah, taking advantage of those opportunities available to you and just just trying them out because sometimes you really don't know until you've tried it something you might think oh I would love that and then you do it and you're like eh, I'm not really sure and then other times well be interested and then you try god this is great I really love it so really just exploring um all the opportunities available to you and what kind of skills do you think undergraduates should uh, cultivate um, during the time during the time that they're in college yeah, so one skill that I feel, um, you know, having worked with various bi-curators, you know, over the years now, one skill I feel like is really, really important, and not just for this job, but really, I think an important life skill is, is critical thinking skills. So if there are any particular classes or ways that you can develop critical thinking skills, I think that's really important. So, um, you know, thinking specifically as a bi-curator, you know, I will be reading papers and 
you can't always take things at face value. You really have to look at like, what did the researchers do? Like what controls did they use? Can they really make this conclusion or not? So critical thinking, I think, is a really important skill to have. And also just for general life, you know, um, you're reading a newspaper article and wow, is, is this correct? Like where, what was their source? What was their information? Um, so I think critical thinking is something that is a really important skill to try and cultivate. And it's something that, you know, like many things I think comes easier to some people than others, but I think it's definitely something that you can work on and learn from others. So that's definitely one. And I think another, maybe not necessarily skill, but maybe sort of attribute is just curiosity. Um, because again, as a bio-curator, um, I would say many times a week, I'll come across a piece of information. I'm like, what is that? I've never heard of that term before. Or, What's this particular assay that they did or this clinical symptom I'm not familiar with? And so you can go look it up. And there's just so much information available to us now, um, you know, via the internet that you can just obviously have to parse through it and figure out what's what's valid and what's not but just having that curiosity to help that learning process um, and again as a general life skill just curiosity looking into different things that you might be interested in or um, that can just you know help in in different ways to find your career path and just keep your life interesting so curiosity I think is is another really important attribute um, and then maybe on a more sort of concrete level, if you're interested in genetics or, you know, potentially even bio-curation, um, just, you know, trying to be aware of some of the sort of big resources that are available to us. So things like uh, the OMIM resource online, Mendelian Inheritance in Man, is a, a catalogue of different genes and um, genetic diseases, which... Um, you know, will give you a lot of information. Um, and then looking at the ClinGen resource, you know, genes and uh, disease relationships, things like that. So just starting to be aware of some of the, the big resources available to us. How do you do a literature search to find information? Um, things like gene reviews, which is are really nice review articles on different um, uh, genetic conditions. So just starting to be aware of some of these resources. And I think some of this may come through um, different classes as well that you would take. Um, so trying to get some of that basic information as well. So looking back on um, your past life as an undergraduate student, is there anything that you know now that you wish you had known then? Um, yeah, that, you know, that's a hard question to answer because I feel like, you know, um, I definitely have appreciated all of the different um, experiences I've had as I've gone through my career in my different types of positions. I guess one thing I feel like is many things I've feel like I just kind of stumbled upon like you know I mentioned that I've had the chance just to meet a genetic counselor when I was uh, in California doing my postdoc and that was completely by chance and so I'm not sure that I would have followed the genetic counseling path had I not just had that random opportunity <laughs> and the same with um, my current job I mean again that I, I probably wouldn't have known about this position had my husband not bumped into a an old colleague of mine so um I feel like one thing that is maybe more available now really are, um, you know, the different opportunities for careers and explore, exploring careers. And um, I think that's one thing that, um, you know, maybe I might have looked 
differently for all the different career options available to me. I'm not sure how much information would have been available then, but that's something I would say to, to folks now. Just make sure that you're just, you know, looking into all your options and exploring what you think would be of interest to you. What do you think job prospects in the field of genetics look like these days? I would say job prospects look really good, <laughs> pretty amazing. I mean, there are so many different possibilities uh, within the field of genetics, um, really because, you know, we understand a lot, but there's still so much more that we have to learn about human genetics, human genetic variation, the impact this has on our health, the interaction between different genetic variants, and also um, things like the, you know, the ethical and social impacts, um, treatment options and things like this. So it's a really a very exciting future and there are so many um, different options available. You can think about, you know, the clinical side of things. So um, becoming a doctor and then training to be a geneticist or a genetic counselor. Um, all of the research side of things where we are learning more about these genetic conditions, about the, the clinical symptoms, the spectrum of clinical symptoms associated with a particular genetic disorder and the genetic variants that cause that. Um, bioinformatics and biostatistics, I think, is a hugely um, expanding field because we have this vast amount of data available to us that we need to be able to process and make sense of. So that's, you know, another um, really big area that's um, part of the genetics field. And then, you know, basic lab research, um, clinical research. There's also the clinical diagnostic side of things. Um, of course, you know, many patients will um, have genetic testing for all sorts of different indications. And there are genetic testing labs, you know, all over the US, all over the world that need, they need technicians, they need variant scientists. Um, they also need bioinformaticians, uh, clinical lab directors, genetic counselors who can all be involved in that process as well. And then um, things like folks who are working in newborn screening labs um, who are working on developing these assays or maybe the communication person between the lab and the pediatrician who's, who's um, caring for that baby. So that's, you know, another part as well. And then, of course, all the educational resources that we need um, to help uh, the general public be educated about um, genetics and what's available to them. And then again, the ethical and social side of um, genetic testing, you know, what testing should we be doing? Shouldn't we be doing, um, you know, treatments and, and things like that. So there are so many different aspects, I think, um, in the genetics field that, um, you know, there really is. It's very exciting to think about how this field is going to move forward in the future. And a lot of opportunities, I think, for people who are interested in this field. Most of your experience has been in the academic and clinical sides of genetics. That's right. But do you have colleagues that have gone to work in industry, like maybe in the genetic testing labs that you've mentioned? I do, yeah. So, um, yes, I know of uh, several colleagues who are working in genetic testing labs. Um, some folks who actually, you know, started out with ClinGen and moved on, um, or, you know, folks I knew when I was um, working, uh, training us to be a genetic counsellor. So a good friend of mine was doing her PhD at the same time, and now she's a clinical lab director doing um, molecular testing. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a different sort of environment. Um, 
you know, you're certainly more on, on the front line. I think there's, uh, you know, a time crunch, like we, we need these results because they need to get back to the patient. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's, it's great work. It's, it's just a different type of atmosphere, I think, compared with academia, where you maybe have more leeway to kind of follow your own path a little bit or follow projects that you're particularly interested in. Um, so although I will say for the clinical testing labs, you know, those jobs, you know, have a different, can have a different pay scale than the academic side of things. So that's something else to sort of think about as well when you're thinking about um, careers. So, yeah, so lots of different um, opportunities available. It's been really uh, great to talk with you, Sabrina, um, and to talk about the job I do. And, you know, certainly I'm always happy to talk with anyone who's interested in um, genetic counselling or being a biocurator or any aspects of the human genetics field. Um, as I said, it's a really exciting field to be part of. I feel very lucky to have had this experience in my life. So um, always happy to help folks who are trying to figure out where they want to go. So, um, yeah. Um, and best of luck to everybody. All right, thank you so much for talking with us, Jenny. Oh, you're most welcome, it's been great.